Freedom. Liberty. It's something we celebrate, something we take pride in, something we have struggled so hard for and have so strongly defended. But true freedom? It's not something we attain or something we have to fight for. It's something we simply accept. God has already made us free through Christ, free from our guilt and shame, free from our past failures, free from the chains of this world, free from our sin. This freedom isn't something we can gain on our own. It's a gift we must accept from God. We are blessed to live in a country where we have these liberties that we celebrate, to speak our minds, to disagree, to meet together and worship God. But without the true freedom offered through Jesus Christ, it all means nothing, and we still remain slaves to fame, to money, to lust, and to self. But Christ has made us truly free, free to live out our true purpose, to glorify God. We no longer show glory to the things of this world. In everything we do, we glorify the only one who is deserving. Today, full of the freedom given us by Jesus, we do what we were created to do. We give God all the glory. Well, let's pray for our country. Would you join together with me? We're called in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to bring our leaders before the Lord. We're thankful for many good aspects. We're not a perfect land but it's a great place nevertheless to live. And so let's lift to the Lord our thanks for the freedoms that we enjoy, for the country that is ours. So would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you as a Lord over this entire world. God, there is nothing that escapes your attention. God, you have told us in your word that you raise up leaders and you bring down leaders. And God, you raise up nations and you bring down nations. We have seen you do that. We know that you will continue to do that. Because, God, you never change. So, Lord, we're thankful for America. We're thankful for the United States of America. We're thankful for the freedoms that we have enjoyed and for those pilgrims, those Puritans who originally came here to establish a place of freedom. God, I pray that we would live in the midst of that freedom and use and exercise the freedoms that are ours and that Jesus Christ would be preeminent throughout. So thank you for this land. We pray for our president. We pray, God, that you would lead him and guide him, and, Lord, that you would season him in that office and that he would serve us well. And for all those other officials in Congress, as well as for those up in Sacramento, God, they need a lot of prayer. And so I pray, God, for your your work in their lives to guide them to do those things that are best for us as people of freedom. So we commit all these things to you now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're thankful for America. There's no place that I'd rather live. And, oh, by the way, I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, it's good to be with you uh, once again. We're in the book of Galatians. Interesting. Thinking about the freedoms that we now have, you know, the pilgrims, the Puritans, when they came over here, they were seeking something better. In those days when the Puritans wanted to live out their faith in in the United Kingdom, uh, they actually had government telling them what they could or could not preach. There was a season there where the, the king said, you cannot preach on predestination because as a country, we don't believe in that. 
And so that's just uh, astounding to think that was the kind of oppression because they were telling the pastors or the priests, they wanted to refer to the pastors as priests. They wanted to have the kind of uh, decorations in the church that was sort of like the Roman Catholic Church. A lot of the Puritans wanted to move out of that. So the government was telling the church what to say and how to decorate their facilities. And there was much other oppression more severe than that, and so they came here seeking that kind of freedom. Imagine for a moment, if you would, what would it be like if we wanted to go back and be under the United Kingdom and let the queen be the one who calls the shots? After one of the uh, debates that took place by the Republican candidates, someone wrote this letter to the Queen of England. On behalf of the American people, I urgently implore you to take us back. (laughs) Clearly the options we have to lead us aren't up to par. Please again, I beg of you, make the United States of America a colony of the United Kingdom. For further reasons as to why this is such a necessary, albeit drastic step, I refer to tonight's Republican Party primary debate. Thank you. God save the Queen. And actually, somebody wrote back, and it's it's sort of hard to, um, anyhow, I'll read it. I have been asked to write in response to your recent letter to the Queen in which you express your views about the American government. Whilst your views have been noted, you will appreciate, I am sure, that there can be no question of the Queen intervening in the affairs of another sovereign state. In other words, she says, I don't want you back. Some of us have adult kids. It's you know, how they keep coming back, you know. Queen says, no, you're an adult now. Stay away. And some of it in, in response to that, what we need is a declaration of dependence, a declaration of dependence. And the whole idea that we look into the book of Galatians is that the Galatians were people like this letter writer who said, we want to go back to the law. We want to be under Moses. We want to worship at Mount Sinai. We want the commands of God to be those things that tell us how to live our lives. And we want to earn our favor with God by keeping those laws. I want it to be, as those people would write, they would say, I want it to be where I determine my salvation by what I do, not by trusting in the promises of God. And so that would be the world of the Galatians trying to go back into the law as ludicrous as it would be for us to go back under the United Kingdom and the Queen. We're in Galatians chapter 5, verse 21, and you have an outline that you will find very helpful, especially so today. And we offer these outlines to you so that you can know, number one, that whoever preaches has done their homework. We're not getting up here winging it. And number two, you have something that you can reference and know that God's Word was written in an orderly fashion as a tool through which we could study and learn more about God. So we like to have those in hand. I'd like to read the text. We're in the book of Galatians, written to a country that today we call Turkey, but it was Galatia in those days. Let me read the text for us this day. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, if you have your Bibles, I'd love to have you read along in your own mind. Tell me, Paul writes, you who want to be under the law, they want to go back under the law. Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondswoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This contains an allegory that these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children, 
For to be slaves, she is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, the children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. What does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. That is a mouthful. Can you imagine the Galatians reading that for the first time and trying to get up to speed? Many of them not even Jewish, trying to figure out who's the bondwoman, who's the free woman, who's Hagar, who's Sarah. So let me break down this a little bit for us to understand some of the background that's going on there and then bring application. He's given the choice of freedom or bondage, and we need to choose which one we have. He goes into an allegory. An allegory, as uh, many of you I'm sure, sure know, is spiritualizing a truth that was a literal historical fact. And uh, it's okay to take the Old Testament and believe it's literally true, as in the case of Hagar and Sarah that we'll talk about in a minute. But what Paul is doing is making an allegory out of them, that they are symbolic of something greater. Hagar is symbolic of the law of the Ten Commandments and being under the Mount Sinai. Sarah being symbolic of the promise of God that by grace we are saved through faith. And so it's a fascinating thing. When you study the Old Testament, we often will allegorize, but it doesn't mean it wasn't literally true. Whether the Garden of Eden or whether the covenant with Abraham or the miracles of Moses and Pharaoh, they all literally happened, but we find spiritual truths that come out of those stories. And that's what Paul is doing here as he finds spiritual truths that come out of them. So he takes the literal story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar and offers these spiritual principles of life. That's how you study the Old Testament. It brings spiritual uh, truth to us that the Old Testament helps to illustrate. In fact, the Old Testament is given to us to understand how God operates, and those are some of the things he does. So here are the people. There's Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish people, as you may well know, in Genesis chapter 12. Sarah was his wife. Sarah is the mother of the Jewish people. Uh, And then there is Hagar, who is the handmaid or a slave to Sarah. And just to break down a little bit of the timeline, to give us a little historical background, let me break down this timeline. Hagar is the handmaid, and here's the timeline. In Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, oh, by the way, is perhaps the most important passage in the Old Testament. Why, Dave? Why do you say that? I'm glad you asked, because Genesis chapter 12 is where God promised to Abraham a seed, a line of family, a nation, and a blessing, to be blessed and to bless the nations of the world. So God put in motion with Abraham in Genesis 12 international blessings. God put into motion in Abraham in Genesis 12 a nation that we now know as as Israel. And God put into motion 
a promise in Genesis 12 that he's going to repeat in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 that he says, in this world I'm going to have a new kingdom someday and Jesus is going to be the king. Now it hasn't, have, hasn't been fulfilled yet. And God established, as you recall, a covenant with him in Genesis 15 where an animal was cut in two and God alone went between those two halves of the animal. Now historically, that makes him the one who's responsible for fulfilling the promise. If both parties, Abraham and God, went through it, then it's up to God and Abraham keeping a partnership. In those days, if you wanted to have a covenant with somebody, you would cut an animal in half, and then both parties would go through it and say it's dependent upon both of us keeping our sides to the, to the promise. God alone went through that animal. So God alone is responsible for fulfilling what he said to you would do to him, make him a great nation. So Abraham is 75 when that promise is given to him. Then we follow along in the timeline. At 85, they have no children. So they've gone for 10 years, and Abraham and Sarah have to be asking themselves, do we have a fertility problem? Because no children are happening. And so they're a little frustrated by that. So Sarah does what is the wrong thing to do, but that might have been customary in the society, the cultures in which they live. So Sarah said, look, Abraham, I can't bear you a child. She assumed it was her who was the problem. And so she says, here, take my slave Hagar. Go into her. So he does. He listens to his wife. And they impregnate her. And at age 86, Ishmael is born. Ishmael and Hagar, mother's son, Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nations. And that's why today you have Isaac, who's the son of Abraham, and Ishmael. They didn't get along when they lived next door to each other, and they still don't get along very well either. For 4,000 years, we find strife that has come because of this decision by Abraham and Sarah to offer Hagar. And then we follow the timeline, and Abraham is now 99. Up to this point, somewhere along the line, Abraham has concluded that Ishmael is going to be the child that God had promised to him. In fact, he had another idea as well that we won't go into. And God says, no, I don't want Ishmael to be the son who carries on the lineage of the promise that I gave to you. I don't need your physical work of doing the deed with Hagar to help accomplish the promise. God wants Abraham to understand, I don't need you to do this. I went through that animal on my own, and it's up to me to make that promise fulfilled. So Abraham, knock it off. I don't need your efforts to make this thing happen. So at age 99, God again promises him a son through Sarah, who is now 89. If you're 99 and your wife is 89... And you think about what color should we color the nursery, you probably need marital counseling. But they are in this process of trying to figure all this out. And so God comes and he visits Abraham. God shows up on the scene and literally has a conversation with Abraham. And let me read some of the text that comes out of Genesis 17. Then God said to Abraham, would you love to have God just show up and say, let's talk. <laughs> let's talk. I know you're frustrated. You haven't had a chill, children, and, but let me talk to you about this thing. That would be a wonderful conversation. 
Then Abraham said to God, to Ab- God said to Abraham, As far as Sarai, your wife, you should not call her Sarai, but Sarah. That's going to be your name. I will bless Sarah. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. See, not Hagar, not human effort, not your works, not things you think you're so clever about. It's not how brilliant you are or Sarah is. No, I don't, I don't need you. I'll do whatever I want to do. I don't need your strength or your power, your wisdom. So he says this to her, to him. It's going to come through Sarah. And I'll bless you with that. And she shall be mother of nations, kings of people will come from her. This is amazing. She's going to be the mother of the Jewish nation. Then Abraham, notice Abraham's response to God. God's standing there, and Abraham has just heard God say, Sarah is going to be the mother of nations. She's 89, you're 99, you're old, get over it. And then Abraham says, it says, he fell on his face and he laughed. He laughed at God. If you're having a conversation with God, do you fall on your face and just mock him in laughter? Man, does God strike him down and says, okay, I've changed my mind, I'm going to go with somebody else. He doesn't do that. He says, Abraham, look, you are a man of faith. I bless you with righteousness through your faith. But you got a lot of things to learn about what it means to journey with me in this faith. And that's some of the things we want to learn. So Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and he said in his heart, he said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? Well, how many of you would ask, probably say the same thing, right? A 100-year-old guy having a child? You, you shudder at the idea of that. And Sarah, who was 90 years old, will bear a child. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Let Ishmael, let Ishmael, let my deed with Hagar be the solution to the problem. Let my efforts take the place of your promise. Let my performance be sufficient to fulfill your promise. Let what I do somehow gain favor with you, God, because God, for 25 years you haven't shown up. For 25 years, I tried to believe the promise. For 25 years, we've had no children. So I go over to Hagar. I help you out by having sex with Hagar. She has a child. Let's just use him. Isn't what I do good enough for you, God? See, we get in this place place where my performance should be good enough for you, God. And God says, "I, I don't need your performance. It's all about my promise. So that's the difference. So Abraham is appealing, let my performance be sufficient for you, God, and uh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, I don't need your performance. Remember, this promise is all about what I do, God says. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. You should call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him. For an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will bless him. And he has blessed Ishmael. The Arab nations, they got all the oil. We're all codependents on Saudi Arabia. 
Behold, I will bless him, I will make him fruitful, I will multiply him exceedingly. He should become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, with whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. That's an amazing conversation between God and Abraham. And one thing that's take, that a takeaway for me is how patient God is with our meager faith. If I'm God, I'm slapping Abraham around. Knock it off. But God is so patient. So when you and I get into this performance that, God, aren't I somebody special to you because I do what I do, I sing the way I sing, I talk the way I talk, I think the way I think, I work the way I work, aren't I somebody special? And God says, oh, man, come on. No, doesn't count. It's all up to me, God says. I am sovereign. And what I choose to do is what I choose to do. You just walk by faith in my sovereign rule. So at age 99, they get pregnant. When Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, God gives them a son, Isaac, in fulfillment of his promise. And the little conversation that went on there at that time. Then they said, where is Sarah your wife? And they said, they're in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. (laughs) I'm reaching the stage where it gets a little sensitive to me when I read people talking about things like that. Sarah was past childbearing and Sarah laughed to herself. Abraham laughs in the face of God. Sarah laughs in the face of Jesus. And after I become old, shall I have a pleasure my Lord being old also? After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord also being old? They stopped having sex. They gave up. It's done. Physically, no, forget about it. We're away past all that stuff, dear God. And so the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? saying, I shall indeed bear a child when I'm old. And here's what God says in verse 14. Wonderful phrase. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? You think about those things that you want God to do in your life, and you might laugh, God, it just seems like it's never going to happen. I've been waiting for 25 years, it still hasn't happened. This person be saved. This person be healed. This job be provided. These finances that are required. This job situation that I'm struggling in. God, when are you going to show up? And you feel like laughing. God, this is ridiculous. Why is it taking so long? And then God would say to us, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you at this time next year. And Sarah said, uh, have a son, and Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, and that she lies. Again, if I'm God, I'm saying, surely there's somebody else out there that will take me up on this offer. Abraham laughs, Sarah laughs, Sarah lies. But God says, I'm still going to do what I said I would do. That helps a lot of us who struggle to live God-honoring lives when we 
look at our soul, we look at our hearts, and we see all the things that we know we think about and we do and we have done, and God still comes to us and says, but you are my child and I will bless you. Not to dismiss bad things, but to say, God, I will rule over bad things. And so she then bore a child. And so God tells us this. Do you want God to accept you based on your performance or keeping the law or his promise to love you unconditionally? God does not want us to live based upon performance-driven life. That's what verse 21 is asking them. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you listen to the law? Is this what you want? You want to you be performance-based with God where I'm always trying to measure up. I go to church because I want to please God. I worship the way I worship because I want to please God. I give because I want to please God. So I hope that God still loves me because my performance, I'm not sure it's up to par, but I'm hoping, just hoping that based upon my performance like Abraham and Hagar, God's going to be happy with me. God says, I don't want that kind of relationship with you. So we learn these things. um, Tim Keller, in his book on this book, Galatians, describes the kinds of people that are going to wrestle with this. For example, there is the law-obeying, law-relying kind of person. This is essentially the Pharisee. There are people in the church today, there are people that I grew up with and probably myself on occasion as well, who believe that law-obeying and law-relying are the self-righteous, superior, I am better than everyone else. I go to church, so I'm better than you. I give more than you, I am better than you. And it's sort of a smug self-righteousness because I believe better things than you believe. So there are those people that Paul might be talking about their law-obeying and law-relying. Then there are the people who are the law-disobeying, the law-relying. These are the people that just live by this guilt. I know that I should be perfect. My performance never quite measures up. I want to do better. And I'm relying upon those laws to be accepted by God, but I keep on failing. I keep on sinning. I keep on thinking things I shouldn't think. And I know that God must be so disappointed with me. And you may be one of those people today where it seems like God is always unhappy with you because you're always guilty before God. You just never quite keep the laws, but you're trying to maintain them because you're relying upon the laws to be accepted by God. You may have grown up with a performance-driven father, a father that demanded perfection that was never quite good enough, whether in a sports field or the classroom or the job choices. So you live under this burden of trying to measure up to something that you believe would make people like you more, then this is where a lot of people are today. There is a big contingent of the world today that are law-disobeying and not law-relying. These are the people who are the secularists. Everything's relative. I make it up as I go along. I don't really know quite what I should do, but I just choose to have the moral standards that fit and make me who I am today, sort of the self-righteousness. This is where most of the world lives. This is where a lot of us in a service like today live. And these are not good places to live because God wants us to move to the fourth category of law obeying. We should obey the law but we are not relying upon the law to be accepted by God. We understand the gospel, we live in our freedom, but we understand the faithfulness of walking before the Lord. This is where Abraham, 
If Abraham had been here, right here, he'd be 24 years in that marriage with no child yet, but praying every day like crazy that, God, I think this could be the year. And God would show up at 99 and says, okay, thank you for trusting me in the midst of 24 years of no answer. That's a hard place to live. So we, when we have 24 years of no answer, we start going over here like, God, I'll, just, I'll try to be better. But I keep screwing up. So maybe it doesn't really matter anymore. But God says, stay here. Just stay here. And give me time to work. So God gives us these concepts, these spiritual principles that come out of Hagar and Sarah to determine. So here's Abraham. That's pretty good likeness, I think. Sarah and Hagar, they almost could be twins. But let me show you the differences here. Genesis 16, Sarah says to Hagar, says to Abraham, give Hagar. And you got all this on your outline. That's why the outlines are prepared for you. But these images of Hagar, this is the kind of life of a Hagar. It's life based upon human effort to perform, to be able to achieve before God. It's a covenant, Mount Sinai, where the law was given. That's Hagar. It's this mindset that we are living in the earthly Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem where people are just doing things to be pleasing to God. And then it's this birth by natural birth. Ishmael was born by natural efforts of mankind. And he says also then finally that one that mocks those in faith. Ishmael mocked the idea of Isaac. Those on the outside of the faith mock those who are of the promise. This is the performance-based faith. But Sarah, according to um, Paul, is the promise-based faith. And it goes like this. That God promised, God fulfilled. It's a covenant based upon the promises of God living by grace and what is called in Genesis and Galatians there, a new Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 21 is the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven, and we don't have enough time to go into that. But Isaac is born supernaturally. This is where it gets this wonderful contrast to the salvation. Isaac is born supernaturally. Jesus shows up at age 99 and 89, respectively, to Abraham and Sarah. He says, next year you will have a son named him Isaac. Next year, 190, they have a son. It's a miracle. Remember, Sarah and Abram, we're, we're not even having sex anymore. How is this even possible? And then he has given birth to a son. What I love about that is the spiritual connection to you and me. That all of us who are saved are spiritual miracles. All of us who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ are like Isaac. We are a spiritual miraculous performance of the promise of God. That's you and me. Not based upon what we do. A lot of people are saved today. They think, like Ishmael, Hagar and Abraham come together, human effort produces a child. Whereas God says, no, I want it to be from me, not from you. And so there's this persecution that happens to those of faith. Let me summarize it in this way. We need to pursue a life of freedom by trusting in God's promises for salvation by faith alone. That is the freedom by faith, by grace of God. Nothing I do can ever save me. Secondly, we need to admit that our salvation is miraculous. It's a new life. It's God's power. It's not human effort. There is nothing I can do to gain favor with God. Nothing I do, whether I'm a preacher ordained by the gospel ministry, that doesn't make me any closer to God than trusting him like the rest of the people in the world today who believe in him. 
Thirdly, I needed to turn from that performance-based life where you attempt to gain favor with God by what you do. Please don't think that coming to church makes God love you more. He is pleased when we worship Him, but it doesn't make Him love us anymore. It's our giving doesn't make Him love us anymore. It should be a response to the, the work of God out of praise and adoration, not out of gaining favor with God. And then finally, we must live by faith, and here is the challenge. Do not grow impatient because God does not immediately provide for you. Remember when God said to Abram in Genesis 12, you're going to have a great nation, you're going to have lots of children, and then for 25 years, God does nothing. For 25 years. How many of you have been praying for a salvation of a child? Praying for the healing of a spouse. Praying for a better job. Praying for spiritual renewal in your own heart. And it seems like God's just not showing up. God says there are times in life like Abram, who was one of the greatest saints in the history of the world, who was the first man of faith in Christ, in terms of the Christ that they understood in the Old Testament. And God held out on him for 25 years. Why did he do that? So that you and I could learn the lesson of patience, perseverance, of enduring, of trusting, even when I don't like the results. That's a lesson. That's maturity. Where you get to that level of life where I'm not getting what I want right now because Hagar and Abraham, they wanted immediate gratification. I want a child now. We've been waiting for 10 years. I want a child now. So they go out there and Abraham and Hagar come together so they can have immediate gratification. Maturity is, I'm not going to get immediate gratification. I'm not going to get everything I want from God. I'm not going to get everything I want from Calvary Church. But God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be found faithful. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to trust you that you're still sovereignly ruling over this world. Even though everything I want, I don't get it now. But I will get it someday. Because that's the promise of God. In fact, that's what he said in Hebrews 11. All these people walk by faith, but they did not get what they wanted. And Abraham is one of them. And the faith relationship can mean a delayed gratification of all of his promises. I want us to be people who trust God, who walk in faith for the things that I can't see, for the results I don't get, for the gratification that is yet to show up, that you and I, we we walk by faith. We don't walk by performance. We walk in the promises of God that it rules over us. And here's a question. I've asked this question before, and I'll ask it again today. Probably don't even ask it enough. If you stood before God today and he should ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Because. What would you say? Why should I let you into my heaven? Having heard everything I just said, how many of you think you should say, well, I've tried to be good enough. If you've tried to be good enough, then you and Abraham and Hagar will get along just fine. Well, I've kept the Ten Commandments. That's Hagar. Well, I go to church, I miss occasionally, twice a month. But I think that's still pretty good, 50-50. Hagar, that's Hagar. That's what Hagar would say. You know what Sarah would say? According to the allegory, Sarah would say, because 
God promised salvation by grace as I have faith in Jesus alone. If you are living there with Sarah by faith in the grace of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then you are in the sweet spot with God because you're like Abraham. I'm trusting in the Abrahamic promise. I'm trusting in the Jesus Christ promise of my salvation. The tragedy of today is to hear everything I said and then say, because I try to be good enough. We've just wasted a half an hour. It's got to be by faith alone in the promise of God through Christ's salvation to everyone who trusts in him. And then we live a life of faithfulness. I want us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, his body and his blood through the communion that we're about to receive, to give thanks to him for the grace that is ours, that it's not based upon performance, it's not doing something, but it's just being someone who has faith in Christ alone. So as you worship with me, let me pray for us as we come before the Lord and and honor him through the bread and the cup as they symbolize Jesus Christ. Help us, Father. Lord, these are, these are important truths, and they can be hard truths. And, Lord, even reading the text of Galatians, it's sometimes hard to decipher everything that's going on there. But I pray, God, that we have touched into at least the core of what you would have. There's much more I know. But, Father, we want to believe in you. We are here because you are a God of promise, not based upon performance. Father, help us to trust in your promises. The promise of salvation through Jesus Christ by faith alone. But also, God, I pray for many here today who are trusting in your promise that is anything too difficult for you. As you said to Sarah, is anything too difficult, God, to save that child of ours? to heal that friend of ours, to transform the relationships where there's need for reconciliation, to bond two people together who are struggling in their marriage, to fulfill all the commands of your word. Is anything too difficult for you? In these areas and many more, God, that's a promise that nothing is too difficult. Jesus said it again. Nothing's too difficult. So God, help us to believe in your mighty power for every situation that's reflected in our hearts who are here. Every person today, God needs your promise that nothing is too difficult for you. Beginning with salvation and being lived out in every other aspect of our lives. Help us, Father, to trust you. And now, Father, we bring these elements to you. The bread, as we remember the body of Jesus, human flesh, who felt everything we feel and yet remained sinless. Help us, Father, to honor you as we remember the body of Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus Christ is that beautiful name, and he gives us these symbols to help us to remember how beautiful he is, and that we would live by faith in the promises of God, that whatever we're going through, whatever the challenge may be, that we don't resort to our fleshly desires, we don't call it quits on God, we don't find the Hagar in our lives that somehow I'm going to rescue God in this matter by not trusting him anymore, but that we go back to Jesus who is the God of promise, the promise of salvation, the promise to never leave us or forsake us, and the promise that we symbolically, he he is still with us, and nothing is too difficult for him. So let's eat this to remember Christ. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. We pass the cup as it symbolizes the blood of Jesus. It was that blood that he spilt upon the cross that becomes the means by which we're saved. We don't have to spill our own blood to be saved. We allow the blood of Christ to do that work for us. It's not what we do in performing for God. It's what he has done for us. And we simply accept it by faith in Christ alone. And so this cup symbolizes that beautiful, precious blood of Jesus. Father, thank you for the blood. Thank you for what it means to us. Thank you for this constant reminder that it's the blood of Christ, it's not our own efforts that gains favor with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
a great reminder to us that God has done it all for us. There is nothing more that we need to do. He doesn't save us about 85 or 90 percent, and we sort of make up that extra 10 percent by being really, really good and showing that we really, really mean what we say when we worship Him or when we give our tithes to Him. So God has saved us 100 percent, and it's the blood of Jesus that our faith relies upon built upon a promise from God. As a God who gave promises to Abraham, he says, I give you promises as well. As he fulfilled his promise to Abraham and Isaac was born, he will fulfill our promises given to us as well. And so we give thanks to God for the blood. As Jesus called it, the blood of the new covenant, a new covenant, new relationship, not the old covenant of Mount Sinai and the laws, but a new covenant that Jesus Christ alone accomplishes for us. Without any effort on our part, he freely offers it that we can believe in it and receive it to be ourselves. And so we remember him and we drink this in remembrance of Christ.